So last week, we saw Paul begin to pray about the glorious truths he'd written about in Ephesians 2, only to, to divert his train of thought to exhort his readers to not lose heart because of his imprisonment. He reminded them that God is in control of his life and their lives and ours, and that God is working amazing things in this church across all time and space. And we're included in this amazing church with its benefits now and forever. But in the midst of suffering, there's fear. There's confusion, discouragement. And uh, knowing these things doesn't make them go away. We still feel it in our hearts. And Paul knows that we were designed for a close personal relationship with our creator. The disaster of man's rebellion in the garden has resulted, among other things, in alienation from our creator and from one another. And even though we've been redeemed by Christ, God often seems distant and discord can be prevalent in our relationships. And even after the temporary relief of a week at the beach or a fun event or something we enjoy, usually isn't long before we find ourselves back in the daily grind where the monotony and difficulties of life rule the days. Our yearning for relief is at root a yearning for the restoration of that close personal relationship with our God. And we long for this. So how is this close relationship with God to be restored? How will the glorious truths Paul has recorded for us move from our heads into our hearts? In our passage today, Paul prays for God to strengthen his readers in their inner being such that they experience Christ in their hearts. Verses 14 to 21. Hear now the word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, this passage today is about our hearts. Would you please overrule my many weaknesses and attend to these words with your power so that we may be able to feel at least a little more of your loving presence today. We, we, we need that. We pray for it. Our hope is in you. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I study a passage, one of the first things I try to do is to, is to get the author's flow of thought. This helps me to understand what he's trying to communicate. <clears throat> and typically, it's, it's fairly straightforward. But I had, I had some struggle with this passage. Um, it's a lot of clauses and phrases, somewhat complex, and wasn't so easy for me to follow. So um, before we dive in, I want to take a step back and look at the structure of this prayer passage. I, I had to do it, so I'm, I'm dragging you with me. 
begins with Paul's return from his parenthesis to his original train of thought that he had at the end of chapter 2. And he begins with a brief intro to his prayer. The actual prayer request is in the second half of verse 16 and the first part of verse 17. He follows that in the second half of verse 17 with, with, uh, with a that you, which in the Greek is henna, which indicates purpose. So it's a purpose statement. The purpose statement of this verse is penultimate. It's not the ultimate purpose of his prayer. Um, we see that in the other that you of verse 19, which points to the ultimate purpose of his prayer. So the basic structure here is an intro, then a request for strength in the inner being. That's the request. So that readers may know the love of Christ. That's the penultimate purpose. So that readers may experience Christ fully. That's the ultimate purpose of his prayer here. And then he finishes out with a doxology, extolling the power of God. That's kind of the, the structure. Paul, Paul is concerned about our hearts. He just spent 12 verses pleading with us not to lose heart. Now he prays for Christ and his power to be in our inner beings, so we experience Christ in his fullest. And he emphasizes that God has the power to do these things. So with that structure in mind, let's kind of look at some more details. When you start at verse 14, it begins, for this reason. Returns to his train of thought from earlier. We saw that same wording in 3.1. So what's the reason? Uh, if you look back at the uh, tail end of chapter 2, 2.17 and following, we see um, that Paul talks about Jews and Gentiles together as members of the household of God together with access to the Father by the Spirit. And then in, we just saw in, in earlier in chapter 3, uh, verses 12 and 13, um, he ends talking about boldness and access and confidence. So in all the other graces that, that, that he mentioned, in both places, Paul acknowledges access to the Father as the inclination and drive to pray. About 10 or so years ago, I was living in Birmingham, Alabama, and my best friend and I were, um, had just been introduced some, to some teachings on gospel fluency and missional community stuff from a pastor in the Northwest U.S. So one day my buddy called me and says, Jeff Vanderstel is doing a seminar in Nashville. Want to go? I said, yeah, we're there. So we called the sponsor to register and to find out where to stay. And the sponsor invited us to a uh, pre-seminar cookout at a member's house. And so we thought, sure, we'll go. We, we don't know anybody. It's free food. We'll go. And uh, so we, we were sitting on the deck, finished our burgers, and we just chatting with some guys. And who uh, but Jeff Vanderstill himself walked up, sat down at our table. What? It was great. So for the next 45 minutes, we had direct access to Jeff Vanderstelt. I mean, there were other people around, but they couldn't get a word in Ezra's. It was awesome. The seminar hadn't even started yet, and it was already so great. Um, you, know, you know where I'm going. So, you know, you know, amazing to have access to Jeff Vanderstelt. How much more? Amazing 
they have access to our King. What a privilege to be able to pray. Several commentators are viewed, um, all made mention of the posture of prayer here. It seems that the customary manner of prayer in this time was standing. But we see Paul here driven to his knees in earnest supplication. Can you think of other times in the scriptures where we see this posture in prayer? The first thing that came to my mind was Hannah entreating God for a son so earnestly that Eli thought she was intoxicated. Think of Paul as he awaited Ananias just after Paul's conversion. He didn't know what was going on on his face before the Father. And then, of course, Jesus in the garden. As we approach God, the posture of the body obviously is not as important as the posture of the heart. Admiration, contrition, submissiveness, hunger, persistence, along with boldness and confidence in Christ are characteristics of the atmosphere in which we are to approach our great and loving Father. So in light of the doctrinal wonders of which he has written, the staggering reality and privilege of access to God drops Paul to his knees in prayer. And moving on to verse 15. From whom every family, uh, in, in the, the Greek there is pasa patria, which can be translated as in the ESV as every family, but the NIV translated as whole family. When we look back over chapters two and three, we very much see a singular focus, don't we? We see one church, one new man, one body, one structure, one household of faith, one temple, over and over, one, one, one. So based on the context, it feels like whole family fits better. The point here is that God is the father of his whole family. The church across all time, past and present. We're his kids, y'all, we're his kids. And we see his named. Perhaps you've heard that naming in Bible times was deeply significant, and it's significant here too. Remember a couple of weeks back, Jonathan declared the biblical truth that every human is an image bearer of God. This is significant identity statement for every human being. It's true. At the same time, the Bible is very clear that the children of God are those who embrace Jesus in repentance and faith. And this is not every human being. Um, you can see that him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So it's good to keep this distinction in mind. And then what we have here is a declaration of endearment. A father for his children. It's the father of his family, his kids. That's us. Move on to the riches of his glory. Uh, my favorite definition for the glory of God is the infinite and awesome greatness and worth of God. So when we think of the riches of his glory, the focus here is on the resources of God, infinite and awesome resources of our infinite and awesome Father. So we haven't gotten to the prayer yet. What's in view is the staggering reality and privilege of our access to an infinitely awesome and wonderful loving Father. What, brothers and sisters, then, is the posture of our hearts? 
Reluctance? Eh, maybe I'll pray. I guess so. Weariness? Cynicism? Like, what good is that going to do? Duty? Here's mine. So I'm, I need to pray. I'm going to pray. Get my list out. It's entirely possible that we acknowledge gospel truths in our minds, but they don't impact the way we live and pray. We want our hearts and lives touched by God so that we're changed. How's that, how's that going to happen? Let's keep going. Verse 16b and 17, this, this is the contents of Paul's prayer. This is the actual prayer request. And again, it's complicated, uh, certainly for someone untrained like me, but you know, some, some commentators see one prayer request, some two, some three, some four. Um, after my reading and pondering, I like the opinion that these clauses constitute one prayer request with complementary parts. So Paul prays that God would strengthen us with power in our inner beings, which I think is the same thing as Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. It would take me a long time to kind of go through why I think that, but just two things real quick. So um, back in chapter one, we saw Paul already declared that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So, so the Spirit dwells in us. We know that. So it seems sort of odd that he would pray for the same thing, again, that already exists, at least to me. Galatians 2.20, remember, uh, you hear of, you know, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we have their clear declaration that Christ dwells within. And then the second half of that verse, verse but uh, the life I live by faith, I, I live, the, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So, so it's, it's the enduring, persevering presence there. God is there already. So anyway, uh, to me, it seems Paul's basic request then is for God to give us spiritual strength in our hearts. So why do we need God to grant us strength? Well, probably because we're not strong. Um, with physical strength, we can help someone, can defend or protect someone or endure some triathlon or some activity. And it's the same thing with inner strength, to help others, to defend and protect and to endure. We need strength to be able to do life in this broken world. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, makes some interesting comments about Jesus and his prayer life that uh, apply for us here. Jesus' prayer life is an expression of his relationship with his Father. Um, we don't create intimacy with God or anyone else. We make room for it. And Jesus means for us to realize, like him in his humanity, that we do not have the resources in ourselves to do life. So, brothers and sisters, God is after our hearts. He longs for us to embrace him and to feel his embrace of us. How in the world can this happen? We in ourselves do not have the strength and power to experientially embrace Christ and his benefits. We can't do it on our own. We do not have the resources in ourselves to do life in this world. We desperately need God, the Holy Spirit, to strengthen us with his infinite and awesome power for this. So we pray, we 
pray. Moving on to verse 17b through 19a, we see the first that you in 17b, the penultimate purpose statement for the prayer. Again, this is somewhat complicated, but it seems to me the clause being rooted and grounded in love kind of points to what follows. Paul uses a horticultural analogy, a tree, and an architectural analogy, a building foundation, to picture what he has in mind. Namely, a tree that puts down roots. And as the roots go deeper in the soil, the tree grows and spreads out in height and breadth. Similarly, a building built with a solid and deep grounding or foundation is able to rise in breadth and height and length. Deep roots and strong foundations yield trees and buildings with tremendous breadth length, height, and depth. The word the ESV translates as comprehend. The NIV translates as grasp. The Greek construction is competent to perceive, with competent being defined as having the necessary ability, knowledge, or skill to do something successfully. So there's an active sense here, there's more than just a passive head knowledge. Tim Keller in his book on prayer prefers the NIV translation and says that to grasp is more than just to believe. It means to get a secure hold on something, to wrestle it to the ground and overpower it. So what is the purpose of God's strengthening and empowering work in our hearts? It is for us to get a hold on the love of Christ and its breadth and length and height and depth. Love that surpasses knowledge. Like, what does that mean? The sense of the prayer is that God will give us power to grasp his love in all its dimensions and will hold on to it, all our strength for dear life. It seems to point to an experience of the life of Christ in our hearts that's not just head knowledge is experiencing the love of God so deeply that it impacts the way we feel and the way we live. So more from Keller. It is possible for Christians to live their lives with a high degree of phoniness, hollowness, and inauthenticity. The reason is because they have failed to move that truth of God's love into their hearts, and therefore it has not actually changed who they are and how they live. What Paul is talking about is the difference between having something be true of you in principle and fully appropriating it, using it, living in it, in your inner being. We may know these things in our heads, but the only way we encounter the living God in our day-to-day experience is by the Spirit working powerfully in our lives. And so we pray and we pray. We don't gloss over the prepositional phrase with all the saints. Again, in this book, over and over again, the corporate nature of our spiritual lives is highlighted for us. We're members of the same household, y'all. Same glorious Father. We're his kids. We need one another to be able to embrace and experience Christ as we're meant to do. That's the facts, Jack. Paul furnishes verse 19b with the ultimate overarching purpose for his prayer, for his readers, 
to experience the fullness of God. It says he wants them to be filled with fullness. So what does that mean? It's like no part left untouched. No part left unfilled. The filling is complete and total. Fullness, we've seen the loving presence of Christ, infinite breadth, infinite length, infinite height, infinite depth. And Keller again, when the Holy Spirit comes down on you in fullness, you can sense the Father's arms beneath you. You can say to yourself, if someone as all-powerful as that loves me like this, delights in me, has gone to infinite lengths to save me, says he'll never let me go, and is going to glorify me and make me perfect one day and take everything bad out of my life, if all that's true, why am I, why am I worried about anything? So as the Spirit wields his power in our inner beings, that we begin to grasp the glories of Christ and his love for us in all its measure, we'll begin to experience a deepening relationship with our Father. That's what we want, where our souls increasingly enjoy, admire, and delight in Christ amidst the joys and sorrows of our lives. And I mean, the sorrows don't go away. We begin to feel the truth and power of the doctrine Paul has been writing, and it changes who we are and how we live. This is ultimately what Paul seeks for his readers. Paul finishes the last two verses, 20 and 21, with a doxology where the focus is on the power of God. In Paul's day, the allure and privilege of power were sought and wielded for one's own purpose and benefits. Rome ruthlessly exercised its military power. There was a plethora of gods vying for power. In Ephesus, Artemis was queen. There was the occult and magic arts used to obtain power. Power was tied to class and ethnicity. Sounds a little like today, does it not? Where nations, religions, organizations, political parties, and individuals seek power to further their own ends. But for the people of our God, this kind of outward power is not the focus, at least not yet. When Jesus returns, every knee will bow. For us now, we seek the kingdom of God first. And we see the power of God moving unstoppably to redeem his people, building his church across the ages. And when the world scoffs at Jesus and at us and attempts to squash us by his power, we need assurance that the power of unseen eternal realities will indeed triumph. And Paul ends this prayer section with just such assurance. Can God do this miraculous work so that we can experience Christ deeply and fully in our lives? Yeah, yes, he can. In fact, he can do more than, all, than our wildest dreams, requests, and thoughts. Nothing can, nothing can thwart him. We have confidence in him to answer in his time, in his way, in his wisdom, we seek him, not primarily his gifts or our feelings. How will he do the work? By the power of, at work within us, 
sovereign resurrection power working us by the Spirit. I don't have the resources for it. This reminds me that God is working powerfully in ways which I'm unaware. To what end is this working? It's for the glory of God. All over chapter one, we saw God working for his glory, praise of his glory. We see it here too. And earlier in chapter three, the glory of God's wisdom was revealed to us in the church. It's, it's cosmic in its expanse. And we're, we're part of it. <laughs> and this glory is ultimately displayed in Christ himself across all time, past, present, and future. So Paul is concerned about our hearts. He pleads with our resource-rich God for the miraculous power needed for us to grasp the love of Christ, grasp it in its infinite breadth and length and height and depth, that we may experience Christ in our lives today and that our lives be changed. We have the resources in ourselves for this. It's a miraculous, powerful working of God in us. We should be aware of our tendencies to make emotional experiences our goal when our aim is to know our God personally and deeply. We should realize that this experience of God is not something that's going to be accomplished in a month or a year. Rather, it's a journey of a lifetime. There's far too much depth in God to be true otherwise. Let me finish up by sharing an example of how this has worked in my life. Hopefully, it'll be helpful. Uh, in both services last week, you all saw the first episode of The Resonate Blubbering Elder. I got choked up in both services. I mean, it's just like, you know, talking, the next thing I know, motion washes over me, and I, I can't control it. Uh, it's kind of awkward, a little bit embarrassing. Sorry about that but I know what's going on. The Holy Spirit is doing his work. As described in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So I'll find as I'm pondering, talking about the beauties of Christ in his person, his attributes and his work for me, sometimes you know, deep emotions of gratitude and joy and affections for Christ well up from within. I can't control it. Total surprise. And I savor the glories of Christ. I have to, I have to stop for, for joy. It's sweet. So I, I deal with the awkwardness and the embarrassment. It doesn't bother me so much anymore. Hopefully it doesn't bother you, but somebody put Kleenexes up here, so if I must speak, yep, I'm the Kleenex elder too, so that's for sure. But see, you, you don't know what I was like 25 years ago living in Birmingham, Alabama. Pride, hard-heartedness, with some self-righteousness mixed in for good measure. Our Sunday school class was studying John Piper's work, Desiring God, and it fell to me to teach the lesson on suffering. While I was teaching that lesson, my wife was at the hospital where doctors discovered abnormalities in my seven-year-old son's blood work. 
The next day, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And God began schooling me as he took us down Leukemia Road. Now, I'm a disciplined guy, always had my devotions, but now I was scared to death, to death. I desperately fought for faith in God's presence by Bible reading and prayer for the next three years during our treatments, for years after those treatments ended. It was so painful to watch my son suffer, and I had no resources to do anything about it. And my other kids, I mean, that, it, was a, it was a struggle for them too. What could I do? Every time we went to the hospital, we saw such suffering. Kids sick, you know, heartbreak all over the place, relapses, families struggling, families being ripped apart. Kids we knew dying. My son did amazingly well. It, it, it almost could not have gone any better for us. But y'all, God changed me deeply. Not that those sins are totally gone, they're not, but they're a lot less than they used to be. For nearly 10 years, there was hardly a day that went by where I was not in the Word and on my face thanksgiving for God's grace and his love and crying out for more of them. I was desperate. I was weak. I had to ask help from God and from others all the time. And you want to know what puts a pinprick in the balloon of pride? Oh my goodness. I can't begin to tell you what it meant for the community of faith to come to our support from, from all over the city. It wasn't just our church. It was crazy. In the school community, and friends, with meals for weeks on end, neighbors keeping our other kids and transform all over town while Laura and I took turns for hospital stays and appointments. And I still had to work. There was no such thing as work from home back then. There were cards and emails literally from around the world. It's going to be episode two here in a minute. So very many from people we didn't know and would never know. Did we feel the love of God in our hearts? Oh, you better know it. Over and over and over. Individually and corporately. Christ and his word are more precious to me now than I can describe. There's nothing I would rather do when I get up in the morning to spend an hour with my Savior. I love it. I miss it when I don't, when it doesn't happen. It's a huge gift of God's grace wrought in me. It's working me over, over decades, y'all. Decades. I'm old. Do I still have sorrows and disappointments? Yeah, I do. I do. But it's different now. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the story from your blubbering elder. Let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. You pray with me? Powerful and loving Father, it is amazing that you've made a way 
and executed it such that we can have fellowship with you as we were designed to have. The sacrament is a reminder of your great love and power. Would you work in our hearts by your spirit to help us recognize our sinfulness and to rue it? And then shine the spotlight on the glorious atoning work of Christ that we can know all our sins are covered and feel your love and delight of us, your children, for joy. Oh, God. Um, Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.